Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Um, I am just going to sort of drop the curtain a little bit and just be real with you guys and just share something with you. It's not easy being a preacher. Um, Some of you are, are sitting there going, Oh, how tough could it be? You have a captive audience and they just have to sit and listen and you yammer on and on. Um, that is kind of the fun part of it, actually. But um, the, the hard part about it is the accountability. And when I was a brand new believer, one of the first things that happened for me was that I took a deep dive into the book of James in the New Testament And I ran across this verse in James chapter three. So grab your Bibles, I wanna start there. I wanna give you this picture. Now, if you don't know where the book of James is, it's all the way to the back of your New Testament. There's a big book called Hebrews, and James comes right after Hebrews. And I want you to go to James chapter three with me, and I wanna give you a sense of what I went through when I first read this verse. James chapter three, verse one. It says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Let not many of you become teachers because as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. And I remember as a teenager reading that verse and thinking, well, thank God that doesn't have to apply to me. Um, you know, I'm not teaching anybody, I'm just a new Christian and, and uh, nobody ever asked me to teach them anything and so I don't have to worry about this but I feel bad for those, you know, pastors and Sunday school teachers and all those people who are responsible for teaching because it says there you get a stricter judgment. Now tell me this, how is that fair? I did not ask for this job, I did not ask for these gifts. This is sort of God's calling, and now I get to face a stricter judgment. And all kidding aside, that makes me swallow hard. I still struggle with that today. I, the struggle is that there is a built-in accountability. In fact, in Hebrews chapter thirteen, it says we're supposed to submit to our spiritual leaders because they will have to give an account for our souls to God. Now, no offense, but I look at you guys and I don't want to give an account for you. <laughs> right? I'm like, I have a hard enough time if I have to give an account for me. But it says there that as pastors and teachers and spiritual leaders, we have to give an account for the souls of the people that God has asked us to minister to. And that is, frankly, um, a weight to carry. Um, Another thing that makes my job difficult as a preacher is I don't know anybody's heart. So it would be fantastic if I knew exactly what you were going through so that I could then design sermons that would hit you right where you need to be hit. But the truth of the matter is we're all going through different stuff. Everybody's got their happy face on every Sunday morning, but I have no idea that some of you are going through tremendous hurt right now. Some of you are going through times of struggle. Some of you are having needs that are going unmet. Some of you have questions that are going unanswered. And I don't know about any of that kind of stuff. And so that makes it difficult. If I could only look into your hearts and I would know what your specific needs are, I could be a much more effective preacher. But I can't. 
And even if I could know your hearts, I still might not know what to say. This is gonna come as a shock to many of you, but I am not all-knowing. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's, it, it was shocking when I first realized it too. I am not all-knowing and I am not infallible. And, and yet, it is my responsibility to communicate the word of God, which by the way, is infallible and comes from an all-knowing God. And without being all-knowing and without being infallible myself, here's the thing. I don't know what I'm wrong about, but I'm obviously wrong about some things. I, I, I have some deeply held opinions that are wrong and I just don't realize it. Even when it comes to the scripture, probably there are some verses that I try to interpret and understand and I get the wrong understanding of and I know this because there are other godly, uh, committed, well-trained preachers and Bible scholars and pastors out there who come to different conclusions about the meaning of a certain verse and, and yet I have this responsibility where I have to just do the very best I can to understand it so I can teach what I think it means. And yet, honestly, I'm gonna get to heaven one day and God's gonna go, oh, oh that one verse, yeah, you had that completely wrong. <laughs> but I don't know that. And so I'm not all-knowing, I'm not infallible. Um, I'm not right about everything. And yet, you guys have to listen to me. If only I could be sure that my opinions about the Bible were always accurate, that all of my understanding was completely accurate, I could be so much better of a preacher. Another one of the big challenges I face as a preacher is that I lack eternal perspective. So the things that I think are super important are often not that important. <laughs> well, you get to heaven one day and you realize that in an eternal perspective, the things I was worrying about actually turn out not to be that important at all. And so lacking that eternal perspective, it is sometimes hard to know exactly what I had to preach. If I had an eternal perspective, I could be a far more effective preacher, but I don't. And all of that is not the hardest thing. The hardest thing for me is this. I don't perfectly practice what I preach. You know, I can, I can prepare a sermon in my study all week and, and dig into the word and craft a really good sermon and all of that kind of stuff and preach maybe on, on patience, let's say. And, and, and I'm preaching on patience as the fruit of the Spirit, and if we just submit to the Holy Spirit, patience will be there in our lives, and we all hear that message, and we all go, yes, amen, that's so good, that's so true. And then there's Monday morning traffic. <laughs> it's like, the patience thing goes out the door, and I'm like, oh, am I the guy who just preached on this? And I realized that I'm not even always applying the very stuff that I'm preaching the way that I ought to be. And I'm glad to know I'm not alone in all this. I assume that all preachers feel this kind of thing. I know the Apostle Paul felt this way. Well, let me show you this in Paul's life. Go to Romans chapter seven. Again, New Testament, after the book of Acts, you come to the book of Romans. 
Go to Romans chapter seven and just look at this passage with me. It starts in verse 18. We're not gonna really teach on this. I'm just giving it to you as an example. This is the apostle Paul speaking about himself. Here's what he says about himself, this man of God. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is verse 18, chapter seven of Romans. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. Now that's the Apostle Paul. He's like our hero, Mr. Godliness, Mr. Commitment to Jesus, Mr. Bible Scholar, and yet he is saying, I can preach all of this stuff, but to be honest with you, it's not always easy to apply in my life, and sometimes my goal is to do the right thing, and I still don't do the right thing. And I know that probably none of you can relate to that, but that's how I feel sometimes as a preacher. So this calling to preach, it would be so much easier if I just, A, knew everybody's heart, if I, if I B, was confident and when all my opinions were correct, if I, if I had eternal perspective that was perfect, and if I was perfect in my application of God's word, I would be so much more effective as a preacher. But you know what? I am not those things. And now before you decide to get up and go looking for another church, <laughs> let me just tell you, uh, you're not gonna find that preacher anywhere. Because there's only ever, ever been one preacher who fits that category of knowing people's hearts, having eternal perspective, being completely infallible, living a sinless life. There's this one guy and his name is Jesus. And he's the only one, the perfect preacher. And he preached a sermon a couple thousand years ago that is without a doubt the greatest sermon ever preached anytime, anywhere by anybody. And it's recorded for us in the New Testament book of Matthew, and it's in Matthew chapter five. So here's what you're gonna need to do. You're gonna need to put a bookmark in Matthew chapter five because you're gonna have to be able to find that every Sunday for a while because the Sermon on the Mount comes in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. The Bible translators have broken it up into three chapters, assigned 111 verses to this sermon, but basically it's a three-chapter sermon that Jesus preaches, and this sermon transcends time. It is as profound today, as meaningful today, and every bit as applicable today in our society, in our time and place, as it was when Jesus preached it to his original audience. So it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, And we're gonna dive into the Sermon on the Mount in the next several months. (laughs) And uh, it takes up, like I said, 111 verses. Not that long. But Garrett swears I can't get it done in eight months. So my goal is to to prove him wrong and get like seven months, three weeks, something like that, (laughs) get this thing done. 
I think I can do that, but you know, that remains to be seen. I make no promises because this sermon, you guys, is so chock full of unbelievably profound, life-changing stuff that it deserves our attention. This is a sermon we need to stop and pay attention to. And so we're gonna slow things down. We're gonna start going verse by verse. We're gonna start looking at Jesus' entire sermon. And because there's so much profound stuff in this sermon that in 2000, years, Christians still have not been able to mine the depths of everything Jesus preached in just a few minutes of preaching. And by the way, um, his sermon changes lives. And that's the measurement of a good sermon. Um, Sometimes I I, uh, teach classes on preaching, and one of the things that I try to get uh, imparted into students is that how do we measure whether a sermon is good or not. Do, do, how do we measure if a sermon is successful? It's not how many people laughed at the jokes. It's not how many people said amen uh, at the key moments. It's not even how big of a crowd you drew and how much people enjoyed it. I don't even know if a sermon is successful until some time goes by and I start to hear from people who say, you know what, Um, that thing you said on Sunday, I actually applied it to my life on Thursday and I'm living differently now because of it. The measurement of a great sermon is changed lives. And Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and you might look at it if you were, say, a Bible scholar and you might just study it for the knowledge and the intellectual input and the philosophy and there's profundity there. It's worth it. But if it doesn't get into your life and lived out through your life, it's kind of just a lot of words, isn't it? And so I love the Sermon on the Mount in that Jesus is not just addressing issues, he's actually talking to people and giving them a way to live differently. And that's what we're gonna try to dig into quite a bit. Um, and, And that's the one thing that made Jesus' preaching stand out compared to every other preacher before or since. In fact, I know I told you to go to Matthew 5. Just flip over to Matthew 7. Let's go to the very end of Jesus' sermon. So Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew's recording of it ends in verse 27 of chapter 7, and then there's this commentary. And I want us to look at verse 28 and 29. Now, three chapters, Jesus preached the whole sermon. Everybody is enthralled. Everybody's listening. And when it comes to the end, here's what it says. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. He actually taught as one who has the authority. See, when, when I teach the word, I don't have any authority to tell you what is true and what is not true. There's this book called the Bible. It is the word of God, and the authority comes from there. The reason the authority comes from here is because this is God's word, and God is our source of authority, amen? amen. 
So, so Jesus, just imagine every one of us poor schmucks who are trying to preach the word ever since Jesus have had the problem that he's sort of pouring through us information and it gets all messed up because my brain doesn't work so great and my life isn't being run so well and I got all these issues and confusion and it, it comes through me and yet the truth of the matter is the pure unadulterated word of God absolutely changes lives. Jesus was the source of that authority. Every one of their scribes, every one of the Pharisees, every one of their rabbis, every pastor that's standing in a pulpit this Sunday morning, we're all preaching on borrowed authority. It's God's authority. Jesus spoke with that authority and it made all the difference. So for us to be able to dig in and go, okay, what did Jesus actually say? Like not, not what did my favorite preacher have to say? What did this book that I read have to say? What was this quote I heard or saw online? But what did Jesus have to say? And for us to have a recording of what Jesus had to say when he was trying to lay out the foundation of his uh, life and ministry is a pretty incredible privilege. So that's what we're gonna dig into. Are you excited to dig into the word of God? Sorry, are you excited to dig into the word of God? <laughs> I'm not sure you're all telling the truth, but we'll move on. Okay, but, but before you get too excited, um, I should warn you about something. A lot of what Jesus says in these three chapters, you probably don't wanna hear. Um, it's hard to hear. Almost everything he says goes very much against the grain of the way people in our world think today. Um, and by the way, it went against the grain of the way people in his world thought then too. When Jesus finished preaching, the crowd of, of followers actually thinned out as a result of this sermon, which is really interesting because that's not what any pastor wants to hear. What you want is, you know, I preached and, I, and the sermon was so great that people went and got their friends and came back and brought more people next week. That's the exact opposite of what happened to Jesus. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd actually thinned out because the things that he had to say were so hard for them to swallow. So Jesus speaks truth, he speaks it in love, but he doesn't leave any room for us to just go, well, yeah, but I kind of like it my way. He, he draws lines. And when he finished, the, the crowd thinned out. A lot of people who were attracted to Jesus in this early part of his ministry, they were attracted to him because they thought he was some kind of ma magician who could do tricks. And, and he had just established himself as a healer and a miracle worker, and they hadn't really heard much of what he was saying, but the word was spreading that wherever he goes, like lepers are being cleansed and, and crippled people are dancing and, and the blind can see, and people are like, I wanna be around this guy. So they're following him, trying to see what, what does he have to offer me? And there's this whole crowd that's beginning to develop. Um, but when they heard what he had to say, a lot of them were just turned off. And, and honestly, when people hear what he has to say today, a lot of them are turned off too. Um, the words of Jesus are radical. The words of Jesus are absolutely countercultural. They are challenging, they are uncomfortable, they are convicting, 
but they are also life-changing and life-giving. So that's why we dig into his words. Listen to the words that lead up. I know I'm dancing all around. We haven't got to the sermon yet, but trust me. Go to Matthew chapter four. Let's look at the last couple of verses before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse 23, gives us some context. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So there's a crowd building. Every area that he goes to, there's more healings. Every area that he goes to, there's demons being cast out. People are in shock. They're astounded. What is it about this guy? And everywhere he goes, the crowd grows and grows and grows, and there's more people following him. And this is just the beginning of his ministry. Remember, if you read the book of Matthew, the first couple chapters really just deal with the Christmas story. So here in chapter four, he's just sort of launching his ministry and then we get to chapter five and one of the first things he does once the crowd gets big is he preaches the Sermon on the Mount because because of his miracles, his displays of power and love, he had already drawn this huge crowd. So he decided to let them in on what was behind what he was doing. He knew that this sermon was going to cost him followers. And I just so respect the way he did ministry because I'm telling you, professional ministers today, and I'm one of them, we really struggle with this. Like, like success is getting a bigger crowd. Success is getting a larger following. Success is more people coming forward and joining your movement. That's how it's all judged. Those are the guys that get invited to speak at the conferences and write the books and do all that kind of stuff. And it's really hard to actually evaluate the success of ministry the way Jesus did. Fascinating to me to study the life of Jesus and his ministry and to realize that whenever the crowd got really big, you know what Jesus did? Something to make it smaller. He either said something that was so offensive that people said, I can't follow this guy anymore, or he actually would sometimes just slip away and get away from the crowd because he couldn't bear to be with that many people, or he would, he would just gather the 12 or sometimes just maybe three of them, and they would, he would minister to smaller groups. Jesus had this knowledge that the smaller the group, usually the more impactful the ministry. And he came to make disciples, not draw crowds. And man, I wish we could just put a, a sign in every seminary campus and every church pastor's office that says the vision is to make disciples, not draw crowds. Jesus was good at drawing crowds. He had to make the crowds smaller to have a better impact. So he preached messages that forced people to say, uh, I don't think so. Now, <laughs> I'm still not gonna get to the sermon. Go, <laughs> go to 2 Timothy chapter four. Okay, it's, it's in your New Testament. While you're looking to, for 2 Timothy, um, 
I'll, I'll use this as a time to, to do a shameless plug. We have a men's Bible study on Saturday mornings. It meets at eight o'clock right here on campus. Yesterday, we just started a study of 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy, guys, I'm telling you, it's life-changing stuff. I would encourage you men to get out of bed early in the morning on a Saturday, get down here. We're having fellowship and prayer and digging into 2 Timothy together. We just started last week, and we're going to go verse by verse through the entire book. All right, by now you should be at 2 Timothy. I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse one, now Paul is writing to Timothy who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus and here's what he says. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, look at this, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So Paul is telling Timothy what Jesus obviously already knew, and that is the crowds love to hear what they love to hear. So if you want to keep a crowd, you don't necessarily teach the truth of God's word. You instead tell people all kinds of crazy stuff about how you're never going to have another problem and you're only going to be rich and you'll never be sick. If you just follow Jesus, everything will be fine. And, and the crowds love that stuff. The problem is it's not the truth. We got to get into the word of God. And sometimes when we preach the word, you know what it does? Divides us. Truth is like that. Okay, you ready to get into Matthew 5? All right. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll compromise with you. I'll make a deal. Here's what we'll do. Um, uh, There's like 10 minutes left. So um, we're going to look at the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5 today. So so do the math and go, yeah, Garrett's right. It's going to take a really long time. We're going to get through the first two verses, and by the way, they're not even the Sermon on the Mount. They're the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, okay? But I want us to look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... If you want to know what he said, come back next week. <laughs> he, it, it, you look at those verses and you're like, okay, obviously we don't need to spend any time on those verses, just, just uh, introduction. You don't know me very well, do you? Because <laughs> these verses seem rather simple, maybe even unimportant, but actually they're really important to give us an understanding of what Jesus is doing here. Um, the fact that he sat down turns out to be really important. In our culture, the audience sits down and the speaker stands up, right? The audience sits down, the one in authority stands up. So every Sunday, you know, we worship and sing and finally everybody sits down, we watch the video of some weird guy with a beard talking about whatever he's talking about and then I stand up 
You guys sit down and, and it's just culturally acceptable. This is the norm. The speaker stands and everybody else sits. In Jesus' culture, it was the opposite. In Jesus' culture, the idea was out of respect and reverence for those who were in authority, he was given a seated position and everybody else either stood or sat. But the speaker always sat. It was a sign that he had authority. So if you're just standing around chatting and talking about, you know, are the Rams gonna win tonight or those kind of things, you can all stand up to do that. But if there's something authoritative going on, then the one in authority would actually sit down. So Jesus is saying something by sitting down. It says, he saw the multitudes or the crowds. He went up on the mountain. Now, this is our picture of a mountain, right? Um, that's kind of what we have in mind when we hear that he, he spoke from a mountain. We think, you know, the San Gabriel Mountains. But it wasn't a mountain the way we think of it. It was more of a hillside. In fact, if you go do a tour of Israel, they'll take you right to the place where Jesus preached this sermon. You'll see that it's a sloping hillside with this sort of valley area down below. It's like a natural amphitheater. And so Jesus, what he apparently did was he, he just climbed up a small amount onto this hillside where everybody could see him and where his voice would carry. Remember, no microphones. No amplification, somewhere between hundreds and thousands of people there to hear him speak. So he goes to this area where there's this sort of natural amphitheater. He goes up above them a little bit so his voice will carry, and he sits down. And that tells everybody, hey, he's going to speak with authority now. And so that's what he does. So picture, you know, in our society, it might be like um, everybody's mulling around a courtroom and then the, the, the door to the judge's chambers opens and somebody says, all rise, and everybody stops talking and everyone stands up and the guy in the black robe comes in and he goes to the bench and when he sits down, that's the sign that the one in authority is there and now we follow him, right? That's the same kind of idea. So Jesus is making a point here. He's sitting down because he's actually claiming some authority. And as he begins to speak, it's gonna become obvious that he claims that authority. Um, so he sits down, and that's important. He's making a statement. But look at verse two. After he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. It, isn't that redundant? Why did we have to know that he opened his mouth? Like, do we think he's a ventriloquist? Is that what we're thinking, that Jesus is doing this whole sermon without opening his mouth? Like, does Matthew think we're just dumb? Why does he tell us, he probably does, by the way, but why does he tell us that he opened his mouth? Because don't you have to open your mouth to teach? The answer is no. Jesus had already been doing a ton of teaching without opening his mouth at all. There's a lot of ways to teach. You see, when he touched lepers who no one else would touch and they became pure instead of him becoming impure, he was teaching. When he, when he cared for little children who in that society were not allowed to interrupt or be involved in any way in adult matters, he was teaching. When he, when he showed respect for his own mother, 
He was teaching. When he kept making time to pray, even though everybody else had an agenda for his life, he was teaching. When he treated the weak and the the disenfranchised as if they actually mattered and deserved respect, he was teaching. So I believe that the 12 disciples who went with him everywhere he went probably learned more from him when his mouth was shut than when his mouth was open. But Matthew wants us to know here that this is a different kind of teaching. What Jesus is about to teach us is so profound and so significant and so specific that you actually need to use words to get these ideas across. So it's not meaningless that Jesus opened his mouth to speak. His words are still teaching us today. And he's speaking to two very distinct audiences. I don't know if you noticed them in those first two verses. Let's look at it again. When he saw the crowds, that's audience number one. Some of your Bibles say multitudes. Uh, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain or the hillside, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's the second group. So there's the crowd and there's the disciples. Let's start with the disciples and talk about them a little bit. A disciple, by the way, for just a working basic definition, a disciple is one who follows his leader with the goal of becoming like his leader. That's what a disciple is. Now, we think of disciples in the New Testament sense and we're thinking of 12 guys. But in fact, Jesus had many disciples There were numerous people, even by this point, who were following Jesus, who already believed he was the Messiah, who had already dedicated their lives to him, who had already left everything else behind and were following him. There ends up being 12 that he distinguishes as apostles and gives them gifts and responsibility to be leaders of the church after he's gone, but there are many disciples, Remember, uh, at one time he sends the 12 out two by two to do ministry. And they come back and they debrief that ministry. Another time he sends 70 out two by two to do ministry. There's a bunch of disciples, okay? But the, the disciples are people who are serious about following Jesus. They have given up the idea that their life is their own and instead they have committed themselves to following their teacher, They are disciples, okay? So uh, he's referring to anybody who, out of love and obedience and reverence, is following him. Those are his disciples. They didn't know everything about him yet, but they were drawn to him, and they knew that he was worth devoting their lives to. And they were, by the way, his primary audience, which we're going to see as soon as we start digging into these verses, and we're going to realize, oh yeah, he's talking to people who are actually devoted to following him. They're his primary audience, but he is well aware that there's a crowd. He's well aware that there are a number of people who are just there uh, to check it out. They're just there because they're curious. They're, some of them are there because they're selfish and they've heard he can do stuff that they want him to do. And there's a number of people like them. Um, and, and that secondary audience makes up the majority of the people that are there, but they are not the main audience for the sermon. They're the ones who thin out after he preaches truth, okay? They're just checking him out. They're curious. 
Some of, some of you might be hearing this sermon right now and, and you're in the crowd. You're like, yeah, I've been, I have this friend who's told me about how, how the Lord is changing their lives and I've been thinking I should get to know more about Jesus and find out if there's any reality to this whole thing. And if that's what you're doing, I am so thrilled that you are here. Welcome. It's really good to have you. But, but some of us are already devoted disciples and others are just in the crowd. And three years later, some of those in the crowd would be in another crowd that is chanting crucify him because there was something about Jesus' life that made you either get left or get right. And this sermon would be the first of many that was aimed at separating the disciples from the crowd. And this sermon still has that same power today. The two groups came uh, came for very, very different reasons, but... No matter why they came, they all heard the same powerful message. It was a message that was about a whole new way of thinking. It it was a message that was about a whole new value system, a whole different interpretation of old truths, uh, a new way of life. That's what it was about. It It was a call to radical submission to God, which helps you understand why it thinned the crowds. It, it, was a, it was an entirely different perspective than they had ever heard before. It was a call to put God first, put other people second, and put yourself last. And that is not what was being taught in that society then, and it is not what's being taught in this society today. And so it's divisive. This is the message of Christianity all boiled into one sermon. And Jesus is about to lay it out for them in no uncertain terms. There were so many competing messages that they had been exposed to. The Pharisees taught them legalism. There there are rules to follow and rules for how to follow those rules and rules for how to apply those rules for how to follow those rules. And the Pharisees were big on rules. And then there's another group of priests called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the liberal thinkers of the day. And their idea was, listen, some of these old ideas don't really stand up with me anymore. Instead, we want to think about things anew. We want to lighten things up. We want to sort of do religion light. That's what the Sadducees were saying. So on the one hand, those guys, you could see them butting heads. On the one hand, the Pharisees are like, follow every rule or you're going to hell. And the Sadducees were like, yeah, let's have another glass of wine. And that's kind of how that was going. And then there's this other group that we don't talk about as much, but they're, they're well represented in the scriptures called the Essenes. And the Essenes taught that the true meaning of life could only be found by separating yourself from the society and looking inward for truth. This is very similar to a lot of the New Age teaching that is popular today, some of the Eastern philosophy that is popular today. That was the Essenes. And then there was a group called the Zealots. And the Zealots uh, were convinced that the only way for Israel to experience God's blessing was the radical overthrow of the Roman government. And so these guys wanted to go to war. And by the way, there's at least two Zealots named among the 12 disciples of Jesus. One of them is Judas, he didn't do so well. And the other one is a guy who's known as Simon the Zealot. And, and God took that passion that Simon had and changed his life and reoriented the direction of that passion. But all of those are different messages. 
There are, these are just what you're getting if you're a religious Jew in that day. All these different messages. And Jesus comes along and goes, listen, I have a very different message and it's not gonna be like any of these people are talking about. All these guys were waiting for the Messiah who would somehow one day come along and, and tell them the truth, who would give them a new way to live, who would, who would give them a new kind of life. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And they don't know what to do with that. It's a radically different message. And those who received that message were transformed from the inside out. The same, by the way, is true today. Have you noticed there's a sea of voices competing for your mind? Is it just me? I, I don't want to. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but um, uh, <laughs> I'm going to preface this. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not somebody who jumps off in all these weird directions and, and thinks that there's like uh, something hiding in all the shadows. But I will tell you this: my devices are listening to me. Are your devices listening to you? Have you noticed this? We we had a staff meeting a few weeks ago where a big issue of discussion was that we're looking into buying some new lights for our stage lighting system. And we talked for at great length about that and the need to do that and made assignments for who was gonna do what research and all that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, I have this amazing staff of guys that, that I just hand this to them and they do it. I don't have to go look anything up on my computer. I didn't have to Google anything. I didn't go visit any stores or talk to any salespeople or any of that kind of stuff. But from the day of that meeting, there is not a day that goes by that I do not see at least 10 ads either in my uh, social media feed or in my emails about stage lighting. Here's my point. There's a lot of people who have an agenda for your life. And there's a lot of competing messages out there. And they are coming from every direction. And, and nowadays, you know, again, without freaking out too much, we live in a time where a lot of this is done with artificial intelligence. We're being fed ideas that we don't even know we're digesting. And they're coming to us from every direction. Wouldn't it be awesome to have access to one who says, I am the truth? to be able to realize that there is one who can silence all the noise and get us focused on the fact that he has given us a purpose and a way to live. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. In the midst of all of these voices, Jesus stands up and goes, hey guys, let me have your attention. Actually, sorry, he sat down and he said, hey guys, let me have all your attention. I'm gonna tell you about an entirely different way and I know how you're supposed to live because I designed you. I created you. You may be here today because you love Jesus. You, you want to learn everything you can about him. You want to walk with him and live for his glory. Others of you might be listening to this because you're in the crowd and you're, you're just trying to check it out and get a feel for it. Is there any legitimacy to all of this kind of stuff? Either way, God has a message for you in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's very direct. It's very clear and it's very different than what our world has to offer. It is a message of hope. It is a message of peace. It is a message of grace. And it is a calling 
to experience that which Jesus calls life indeed. So, I promise if you come back next week and Jesus doesn't come back first, we'll actually start the Sermon on the Mount in verse three. Does that sound like a good deal? All right, I'll see you guys next week. Let's stand and pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we're not just left um, without, without any direction to try to figure out from among all the voices what the truth is. Thank you that you didn't just leave us to, to figure it out, but you actually gave us your word and in that is these three chapters where Lord Jesus, you took the time to design a message that was meant to give us a new view of life and change the way we live our lives. And so God, as we go from this place, I pray that we would not just be people who learn something or know something new, but people whose lives are changed because your word is true. So we dedicate ourselves afresh to you. We ask you to have your way with us and we give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.